So today we're looking at Mark 9, 42 to 50. If you'll go ahead and find that. Mark 9, 42 to 50. I think, if my count was right recently, I think this is the 46th sermon on the book of Mark. We've been working our way through it little by little, just trying to absorb and meditate on and apply what's here to ourselves and um, live in obedience to what we see and in light of what we see. And we've worked our way up to Mark 9, 42 to 50, which is this section of Scripture that contains some of the teaching that Jesus gave his disciples. And we probably won't deal with every verse in this section today, but uh, let's read at least verses 42 to 50. Hope you have it there in front of you now. This is the word of the living and true God. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. If we had to boil this down to one phrase, this passage is really highlighting this for us, the seriousness of sin. Do you see that in that first read-through? Think with me for just a moment. <clears throat> Does the world in general seem to care all that much about sin? Is this world characterized by a healthy fear of sinning against God? Unfortunately, that is not a characteristic of the world that we live in, and it's one of the clues that we live in a world post-Genesis 3 that we read earlier. This is a fallen world. Romans 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And um, one of the symptoms of sin is that it clouds the mind and, and our judgment, right? We think we're wise when we've become fools. And if we're left to ourselves, we even begin to reverse good and evil. We begin to twist God's good standard into some uh, grotesque standard of our own making, and we begin to call evil things good and good things evil. And without God's truth, we have no way of correcting that. We become very confused about what even is good and evil, right? Sometimes our society even celebrates what God says is evil. And the prophet Isaiah pronounces a woe on any people who do that. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. In fact, the 
mission of most of the prophets in the Old Testament was exactly that, to tell people how serious sin was. That was their whole mission from God. They were to come and tell people that judgment was coming from a holy and righteous God because of their sin, and it is most assuredly coming unless you turn and repent of that sin. And God would send prophet after prophet to warn people about the consequences of sin. Let me just give you one example. This is from Jeremiah. It's a good kind of summary of what God was doing in the prophets. It says this. If it's small there, don't worry. Jot it down, and I'll read it right now. But Jeremiah 35, 15 to 17 says... I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them, and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But, he says, you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab... The son of Rechab have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them, and they have not answered. There's passages like that all throughout the prophets. God sends his people messenger after messenger to warn people about where their sin is going to take them. And generally, they didn't listen. And God brought judgment, just as he said. And that hasn't changed God hasn't changed his mind about sin, right? And therefore, we should take sin in the same light that he takes it. He takes it very seriously, and so should we. We ought to listen when he speaks. And this passage before us today, it helps put the seriousness of sin into the proper perspective. So the very first thing I want to point out to you from Jesus' words is this. He starts in verse 42 with this. The seriousness of leading others into sin. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, or that word can mean to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck And he were thrown into the sea. Now that's pretty vivid, isn't it? Let me just point this out so we can better understand what Jesus is saying. There were several kind of millstones that were used in that culture. A millstone is this big stone. You kind of see a picture of one there in the background on the screen. That's a big one. That's the kind he's talking about. But there were more. There were hand-operated ones, smaller ones. And then there were these heavier ones that had to be strapped to an animal to move it. And it would roll across that rock and crush grain, of course. And we know that Jesus is talking about a big one here because he uses a word that means donkey-related. That word great, a great millstone, or perhaps your translation says a large millstone, that word in the Greek means of a donkey, a a stone that a donkey had to pull, massive. And Jesus says it would be better, get that now, it would be better for a person to have that stone around his neck and thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of my little ones to stumble or sin. So given the choice, let me just reword it. Wrap your mind around this. 
given the choice between being punished by God in hell, which is what he's saying here all throughout that whole passage, we saw it. Given the choice between being punished by God in hell or being drowned in the sea with a great millstone around your neck, people would choose the millstone every time. That is how horrific hell is going to be. It's not a party place for sinners, as it's sometimes made out to be. And the thought of um, drowning like this would have been like unthinkable for a Jew because to die in such a way where you could not have an honorable burial was the worst. And drowning with a large millstone around your neck would ensure that you were never found to receive any kind of burial. Your body would decompose under the water. And Jesus says, that is preferable to what's coming for all those who reject me and my teaching and try to deter other ones from believing in me or to cause them to sin. That's what's coming for them. That's some strong language, isn't it? And just so you know, we're probably going to look in a future, a near future message at what Jesus says about hell. The doctrine of hell is not something that you hear very often in churches, but we need to know what the Bible says about hell. Despite um, popular opinions of Jesus, um, you know, these popular opinions that make him out to be some kind of Jewish sort of hippie who traveled around talking about peace and love all the time, he actually spoke quite a bit about hell. And so we are going to look closer at that, but it deserves its own message, so we won't be doing that this morning. But again, just taking these statements at face value, do you think that Jesus thought sin was a serious thing. Surely he did. We see that so plainly here. And then you put, you put verse 41, the last verse that we covered last time, you put that together with verse 42, and it's like Jesus is saying this, just like God rewards those who care for his people, verse 41, he also severely punishes those who causes his people to stumble or sin or in any way try to deter them from following him. Verse 42. Now, who would be doing that? Who, who is he talking about? Were there people doing this at this time? This is the exact kind of thing that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were doing, weren't they? They didn't want anybody following Jesus. And they did everything they could to deter people. They, up, up until the very drastic measure of killing him. We'll get rid of him so that nobody can follow him. So they thought. They didn't want to lose their political power, you know, by having lots of people following this guy from Nazareth, which is all he was to them. They wanted people following them and looking up to them and listening to their teaching. And having their political power with Rome, not with Jesus. And just like Jesus has very strong words here in this passage, he had strong words for these Pharisees and these Jewish leaders many other times as well, didn't he? They're drawing people away from him. They're trying to discredit him. And Jesus calls them, among other things, you hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of God in people's faces, he says. They're keeping people from salvation. He says, you won't enter into the kingdom of God and you won't allow any, anybody else to enter it either. He calls them sons of the devil. John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil. 
And he's saying here in our passage today, it does not end well. Hear me. It does not end well for anyone who rejects the Lord Jesus. And no one goes unpunished who draws people away from him either. Even his, what he calls, little ones. Whether we might be talking about literal children, like the child he had just set down in front of his disciples in the previous passage, whether we're talking about these little children who come to Christ, or whether we're talking about a little one in the sense of an adult Christian who is just a lowly, seemingly unimportant person, but who believes in Christ. They're one of God's little ones. And that person is important to Jesus. And their spiritual well-being is important to him to such degree that he says, if anybody tries to deter my little ones, it's better to have a millstone around your neck and to drown in the sea. Amazing. That's care for his little ones, by the way. Now, what if we broaden this principle out just a bit and apply it to the people of God? I think that we can learn here from verse 42 this general principle that's maybe a little bit more general, okay? This higher, more bird's eye principle that God cares very deeply about the effect that we have on one another's walk with Christ. So ask yourself, do I take other people's walk with Christ seriously? Do I consider um, how my decisions and my words and my attitudes and my thinking about something? Do we consider how that might affect other believers? Read 1 Corinthians 8 as an example of that type of consideration. Check that out later if you would jot it down. 1 Corinthians 8. Sometimes people get into, we can easily fall into this attitude of the Christian life is just Jesus and me. I'm not going to worry about anybody else. I can only really control what I do, so I'm not going to concern myself with anyone else's walk with Christ. I'm just going to focus on me and Jesus. And that's true that we really can't control what others do, but that, really, that attitude really doesn't take into account the effect that we can have on brothers and sisters and their walk with Christ, for the good or the bad. The reality is the Bible constantly calls us to help one another in Christ. It calls us to help each other follow Christ. For instance, in the book of Hebrews, you know, in chapter 10, right before that very clear and well-known passage about not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, we read these words. Hebrews 10, 24, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, that doesn't sound like a Jesus and me type of solo Christianity, does it? We're supposed to put forth effort into thinking about and implementing ways to stir up each other to follow Jesus better. That's what we're to be doing. What about helping each other fight sin? Well, we're supposed to mind our own business, aren't we? Does God say mind your own business? You're a sinner too, so therefore you have no room to talk to anyone else about their sin. You need to just look at yours. Of course, we shouldn't be hypocrites. But we're also not to take that attitude. We're to help one another walk with Christ. Sometimes 
Myself, I'll use myself as an example here and not put it on anyone else. There may be a sin in my life that I am blind to. We all have blind spots. There's a sin perhaps that I don't even see, but it's obvious to others. We're to help each other, and we're to lovingly point it out, and privately, by the way. We don't leave it up. God doesn't leave it up to us as individuals to figure out everything with our sanctification. Our sanctification is like a church community project. Again, the reality is sometimes we can't even see our own sins, and we just need each other's loving help and counsel. Listen to James 5, 19 to 20. He says... My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That directly goes against some of the attitudes that sometimes we are tempted to have. James doesn't say, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, just let him go. He'll figure it out. It's really none of your business. No. It is profoundly loving to help each other follow Christ. I like to use the analogy, when you join a church, you are locking arms with the people of that church. And you're walking to the celestial city together. And when your arms are locked, if somebody falls, you're going to help them. You don't say, oh, well, there you go. See you later. We'll keep going. Hope you catch up later. No, we're all arms locked. We don't leave any man behind. That's what Christians do for one another. And that means encouragement. That means praying for one another. That means giving godly counsel when it's needed. And yes, it even means pointing out sin when it's necessary. In our membership covenant, we actually agree to do this for one another. We say this in point seven of that membership covenant. It says, I will watch over the other members in love as they watch over me. I will remember them in prayer, help them in sickness and distress, promote their spiritual growth, and stir them up to love and good deeds. That sounds familiar from Hebrews. And we also say in point 11, if I become consistently neglectful of these duties or guilty of conduct by which the name of our Lord Jesus Christ or His church may be dishonored, I understand that I will be counseled, admonished, or if necessary, disciplined as per biblical standards for the purpose of restoring my fellowship with Christ, my fellowship with His church, and for my personal growth in holiness. And oftentimes that doesn't even involve the elders of the church at all. That can be one church member going to another church member, counseling, encouraging, admonishing, not in a self-righteous way, but in a loving, humble way way, right? Church members help each other follow Jesus. Again, the, the reason that I'm bringing this up here, I hope you don't think it's unrelated. I think it's an implication of what Jesus is teaching. Apparently, he wants us to take other people's walk with him seriously. We can cause others to stumble or sin. And we ought to take care not to ever do that. We're always to be, <clears throat> think of it this way, we're always trying to be helpful to one another, not hurtful. Building up instead of tearing down. We ought to have a kind of filter in our mind and in our view where we ask ourselves, what will what I'm doing help my brothers and sisters in Christ or will it hurt them? Will it be a possible uh, cause for stumbling, a possible cause for sin in their life? 
If I do this, A, B, or C? Am I making light of sin in some way and thereby causing them to take sin lightly as well? If so, I better not do this. We ought to have a filter like that in place. And there is really a host of ways that we can cause each other to stumble and sin, right? You could go on probably infinitely with ways to do things bad, right? But let me just mention a few for our consideration. Ways we can cause stumbling and sin. First of all, we can teach one another wrong doctrine. This is why... James gives the warning that not many people should become teachers because teachers will be judged with stricter judgment. James 3.1. And if you're in a position to teach others, whether that's a pastor or maybe a Sunday school teacher or an Awana teacher, I encourage you to take that role very seriously. You're responsible for how and what you teach. But even if you're not in one of those formal roles, I would guess here that many of us are parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. We don't have any great-great-grandparents in here, do we? Raise your hand if so. We do have great-grandparents, I know that. Are you helping those in your care thrive spiritually? Are you knowledgeable enough yourself? Do you, are you solid enough in good, sound doctrine to be able to teach them those things and not lead them into error by what you're saying to them? This is our responsibility before God. We can teach wrong doctrine. We can also cause people to stumble in sin, not just by teaching false things, but what about just lacking good teaching in general, maybe saying a whole lot of nothing? Parents and, and grandparents and great-grandparents, are you giving those that are in your care, those little ones in your care, are you giving them the solid foundation on which they can build their life? Are you preparing them for eternity? Because the world says, prepare them for college, prepare them for a job, prepare them to get a spouse one day, prepare them for this and that, cultivate their talents, um, really spend a lot of time teaching them sports and various recreational things. But the world doesn't say the most important thing, are you getting them ready for eternity? Are you getting them ready to meet God? If we don't do that, we have failed, right? Deuteronomy, I love this passage in Deuteronomy. As a parent, it, it admonishes me, it reminds me every time I think about it. It talks about using every opportunity to teach our little ones God's Word. And again, don't just think children, think grandchildren that come over to your house that you take care of or your great-grandchildren or your nephews or nieces, whoever. Listen to it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. There it is. First, it's got to be on your heart, right? Then verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's basically all the time, right? So are you causing any of these little ones to stumble because you're failing to take advantage of the time. Just something to keep in mind. Another way we can cause stumbling and sin, we can mislead through bad example. Just being a bad example. 
Every parent has done that at some point in their life, I know. But of course, there is a lot of ways to set a bad example. Um, I don't want to sit here and try to apply every single thing that I can possibly think about. What about just a simple one that involves the church body? It can be something as simple as this. Are you faithful to obey God by attending the meetings of the church? It's so simple, isn't it? Do we realize, do you realize how, uh, how faithful, regular, committed attendance affects others in the congregation? It's affected me through the years. We teach something with our attendance, don't we? We're teaching others that we take God's commandments seriously and that we recognize that we need this meeting. We need to be with other believers. We need to be taught the Bible. We need to sing with other people that are believing in Christ. We need to be serving others. They need my gifts that God's given me. I need their gifts that God's given them. There's a host of reasons why we need the week-in, week-out meetings of the church. But by being here, we're saying also, God is worthy of obedience, right? One person said it like this, and it can be very convicting. I'll go ahead and forewarn you. It can be very convicting. One person said it this way. If everyone in the church were as committed as you were, or if everyone in the church were as close to Christ as you were, what would the church be like? Would it be healthy? Would it be unhealthy? You can most certainly affect people's walk with Christ through a good example or a bad example. I remember one good example as I was thinking through this. There's many of you who have been a massively good example to me in your faithfulness to church. But I remember one named Miss Elsie York. In her latter days, she was in a wheelchair. She was on oxygen 24-7. But she was here every time the doors were open. And she would serve in whatever way she could in that wheelchair. And I just thought to myself, that's what faithfulness to God's church over the long haul looks like. That preaches an unspoken sermon to all of us, doesn't it? And you're doing the same, however you're treating that command from God. Four, we can mislead through hypocritical living. Sort of related to the last one, but... We can teach one thing. We can say, well, we're te I'm teaching my little one's good doctrine, but then we don't live it out. We can be hypocrites. We sing that song in Awana. Hippocritter. It's a little fun song about being a hypocrite. One line, ends, one line says, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. That's so true. What you do generally preaches louder than what you say. Do you live out what you believe? All these things are things that can make another person stumble. Not only is it not good for yourself, it's not good for these other little ones, Jesus calls them. His little ones. If they took after my example, would they be sinning or would they obeying? Would they be sinning or would they be obeying? That's what we should ask ourselves. Number five, we can make others stumble and sin by just letting others do all the teaching. Let the world do all the teaching. They'll learn, right? They'll learn eventually. But here's the thing. They're not going to teach them good things. The world isn't, right? 
Someone is going to be teaching those in our care. And Satan does not take breaks. They will be educated by this godless, worldly system if we don't educate them ourselves. If we don't bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The world will just take them with their current, and that current leads away from God, not closer to Him, right? What about this one? We can tolerate sin instead of mortifying it. Does that make someone stumble or sin? It does. How do you deal, ask yourself, how do you deal with your sin? And how do I deal with my sin? The way in which we handle our own sin also preaches very loudly to others. It will affect them either negatively or positively. Do you sort of treat it lightly and just say, well, God forgives me? Or do you, he does forgive in Christ, praise God, but do you treat it as something that really grieves God? Are you broken over your sin when it happens? All these things are ways we can lead others into sin and, and cause them to stumble. I just pray that we would hear this as a loving warning. Are you or I causing any of God's little ones to stumble or sin? Are you, on the contrary, are you actively helping one another? These people you see here. Are you helping one another follow Jesus more faithfully and more committedly? According to verse 42, God cares about the effect that we're having on one another and each other's walk with him. Now let's look at um, verses 43 to 47. And we'll see number two. The brutal process of fighting our own sin. So earlier we were talking about causing others to sin or leading others into sin. What about our own sin? Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. So Jesus turns here to talk about how we ought to deal with our own sin. And just like the, the millstone drowning scene... This is another very vivid picture. This time he talks about cutting off body parts. I just want to ask again, do you think that Jesus sees sin as something serious? We see it here so plainly, don't we? How serious Jesus thinks sin is. Does he say we ought to coddle our sin? Does he say we ought to deal lightly with it? Does he say, well, just remember, you're all sinners. Don't be too upset with yourself when you sin. It's bound to happen. No big deal, right? That's not Jesus' attitude here in this text. Jesus tells us to get brutal with it. If something causes you to sin, get rid of it. He says. Now, is he talking about physically mutilating ourselves? No. Plucking an eyeball out, for instance, still doesn't keep you from sinning. That's not the point. He told us back in Mark 7, remember, that sin comes from the heart. So chopping off a body part won't keep you from sinning. But just because he's not talking about physical mutilation here doesn't mean he's not making another serious statement. He's using this hyperbolic language to prove a big point. He's saying you ought to part ways with anything, no matter how dear it might seem to you, if it's causing you to sin. 
As I was reading, I came across John Gill, the 18th century English Baptist pastor. He said this, It is better to part with everything here, everything here, that's detrimental to a man's doing or enjoying what is spiritually good and enter into eternal life than having two hands to go into hell. Did you hear that? It's better to part with anything and everything that's detrimental to your spiritual good. So the message really is, if you don't deal with your sin, it will take you to hell. That's where sin takes us. Verse 43, 45, and 47 all say it. It is better to part ways with something that seems as precious to you as a body part and enter eternal life rather than keeping it and going to hell. So then, I guess the question is, fellow Christians who are here, how serious are you in battling your sin? Do you take Jesus' words here and his attitude towards sin to be your own attitude? Or do we shrug it off? People of grace, we love God's grace, but do we use God's grace as an excuse to sin or as a way to just say, ah, I'm forgiven? Do we do mortal battle with our sin? That's what we should be doing. John Owen, the Puritan he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. Maybe some of you have read that. I'm not sure. But one famous line in that book, he says, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. <laughs> in other words, if you're not fighting sin, you can be sure it has mastered you. If you're not fighting sin, you're probably still a slave to sin. You may be self-deceived, in other words. There should be no toleration of sin in our lives. We are to put it to death. Listen to a couple of verses. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Or Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And I don't know everything in your life that's causing you to sin. There's no way for me to know that. Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's the TV. Maybe it's the books that you don't need to be reading. Maybe it's the things you don't need to look at. Maybe it's places you don't need to go. Maybe it's people you don't need to be hanging out with. Maybe it's something that's not even bad in itself, but it just takes all your time and energy and distracts you from doing more important things. Whatever it is that causes you to sin, Jesus is saying, cut those things loose. Deal harshly with your own sin. And I think it's helpful to remember this. We ought to deal less harshly with others' sin. Sometimes to the point where we just plain overlook a fault. We have patience with one another, right? Overlook each other's sins, bearing with one another's weaknesses. Sometimes that's very appropriate to do. But as far as your own sin, we put that to death. That's the attitude. And it's based on what God has done for us. We are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, Romans 12, 1. Be zealous for good works, says Titus, the book of Titus 2, 14. Let me address the... Uh, the person here who hasn't repented of their sin and has not trusted in Christ. The sin that you have 
thus far left undealt with is basically serving as a weight that is going to take you down into hell. And I I don't want to sugarcoat that because the Bible doesn't. I don't want to soften the edges of of that bad news. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. You and I have earned a wage with our sin. And that wage that we've earned is God's wrath in hell. Spiritual death. And so... For the person who doesn't know Christ, trying to cut off a hand or a foot is not going to do you any good. This isn't a self-help message from Jesus. What you need is actually radical surgery. As a matter of fact, the analogy that the Bible gives us is that you need a new heart. Prophet Ezekiel talks about how God in the new covenant covenant that we're living under now. Under that covenant, he's going to give people new hearts and a new spirit, and he's going to take out hearts of stone and put back in a heart of flesh, and he's going to put his spirit upon people and cause them to walk in his statutes. That's Ezekiel 36. And the same thing in John 3 is when Jesus is saying, in order for a person to enter the kingdom of God, they've got to be a totally new creature. They need to be born again. And you can't even do that for yourself. God has to do that. And you'll have really zero power over sin without a new heart and without God's Spirit within you, right? So maybe you've seen... um, to some degree, your own sin, and you've been trying to fight your sin with all this willpower. I know sort of what to do. I want to do it. I'm trying real hard. That's not going to work. You need God's help. You need His Spirit. You need a new heart. And I pray God makes it clear to you that you need Christ. Even today, I hope He's drawing you to Himself by making you see what it is that you really need. You need Him. You need Christ's righteousness. He'll give it to you if you come to Him in repentance and faith. Talk to me afterwards if you have questions. would love to talk to you about that. And then, may those of us who are followers of Christ now, let's hear Him speaking to us today in this passage as well. How we affect other people's walk with Him matters. Make sure that you're not a stumbling block to someone else. Don't be a person who causes others to sin. And as far as your own sin goes, put them to death. Do battle with them. Take serious steps against them. Cut off all the pathways that sin gets to you. Cut out what needs to be cut out. And then, like the song We just sang earlier. The encouragement is we're almost home. The fight doesn't last into eternity. It just lasts until Jesus gets here. And that's almost maybe around the corner. I don't know. But either way, your life and my life is short. And the fight's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. But one day... That fight will be over. Sin will no longer be in us. We'll know a peace in here that we've never known before. There's just been a battleground in here. That will be over. But in the meantime, just keep fighting. You're almost there, Christian. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Pray with me now. Lord, would you bring this passage to bear on our hearts? 
Help us, Lord, to be harsh with our own sin. And may we be just more mindful of how we're affecting others' walk with you. I pray you'd make us diligent and not lazy. I pray you'd not let us get complacent or lax in our walk with you. Help us to be zealous for good works. Help us to set aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And once again, Lord, we pray that you would draw those who haven't yet come to you. Perhaps there's some sitting in this very service. Help them to have the word of Jesus ringing in their ears that their sin must be dealt with and it must be dealt with by him. No other person can save them. There is no other savior. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Grant a new heart and new eyes for them to see this truth, Lord. Help them to finally see their need and see how that need is met in Jesus the Redeemer. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your grace to sinners like me who deserve nothing but hell. We owe you everything. Give us eyes to see these truths, Lord, with just new clarity and appreciation. We pray all this in Jesus' name.